Welcome to another evidence-based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood, the Archimedes podcast, where we take you through a snippet about thinking about the practice of evidence-based medicine, and then a couple of cases that were generated by real people from real things happening in the real world, and brought to you virtually over the magic of sort of talky things in electronic bibbly bits. Fortunately, there's very little singing in these podcasts, although with enough encouragement, perhaps sponsorship, and maybe a little bit of twisting of the arms of the section editors, that could be arranged for some point in the future. Anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about today. Here, we're talking all about the practice of evidence-based medicine. Now, some of you listening to this will be doing it on an iPhone 12 Pro. Some will be listening to it on their computer while they stab at their Nokia 7320. Others may be thinking, what, what, what is an iPhone? As they're overhearing it from their grandchild who has burned it onto a piece of vinyl and played it in the background. Technologies are said to follow sigmoid curves, with early adopters picking up tech or innovations and leaping months or years ahead of everybody else, delighting, they will say, in the new great thing for longer than the people at the other end of the curve, the laggards, have. And they also, us stick in the muds at the laggard end, no, they suffer the bugs and the breaches of data and the failures, and they head off down ultimately very wrong roads, like the Sinclair C5. For those of you who haven't uh, been uh, in the education system uh, in the last century, then, um, then you, you might want to go back onto the history lessons and look up that. This same emotional, intellectual and risk and reward type thinking can be seen how we work in paediatrics as doctors, as, as, pr- as practitioners. Some, some practitioners will always be wanting to try out the new stuff as soon as the trial emerges or maybe even before that when the press release hits Twitter as it comes out of the first inhuman stuff. Others will wait for the medicine to have been appraised by the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, reviewed by the Trust Drugs and Therapeutic Committee, integrated into the intranet guideline and on the e-prescribing quick pick list, and used by at least three of our friends before we even think about putting it into practice. How we understand all of this difference becomes very intriguing when we put it into how we apply the results of evidence-based questioning. The paradigm of EBM suggests that we ask a question, acquire some information, appraise that information and apply it into practice, rationally following the results. That appraisal leads into action. But we have to remember that we always incorporate uncertainty there and the valuation of that uncertainty into long-term consequences or imprecision and estimated effects. These elements of valuing those sway our thinking. Shared decision-making within a, a multidisciplinary team and with the parents and families means that perhaps we can seek to balance out those instincts, be they from the alpha testing bleeding edge right the way back to the laggards that sit behind all of us. Maybe it's how we then seek between us all the best decision for the family that's in front of us. 
Now our first question this week is one that we don't often ask about really and that's probably because the majority of us are firmly settled into our secondary care existence or tertiary sub-sub-sub-specialty care existence. But the question is around adoption and the way that we interact as paediatricians in adoption. The question arises from a 33-year-old single man approaching the local adoption service with an interest in adopting a child. And he asks us a specific question, whether people on the adoption panel will see him as a worse candidate than a couple, and if there is any evidence on children's outcomes when they're adopted by a single person. Now this question comes from Alana Levine. She's working in Berkshire at the moment in a department of community paediatrics down there in the Healthcare Foundation Trust. The question that emerges from that in the sort of structured form is, is a child placed for adoption? That's the sort of patient. Does placement with a single person, intervention, compared with placement with a couple, the control, give better or the same long-term outcomes in terms of physical and mental health, success of the placement and general well-being? went away, looked at the usual places you would look. So Cochrane reviews into the Medline type databases, but also expanding those into the psychological and social care databases as well. Putting all of that together, there were 905 potentials with 271 unique ones from PsychInfo, Embase coming up with 259 and Medline only 154. Going through all of these, in some detail, bringing 40-odd of them into full text looking at, then eight were in the far end of papers covering six different studies. She also went sideways into reports. Now, in this sort of area, much work and, and studies are not published within medical journals, but the tradition of monographs or formal reports to organisations is where a lot of the research is held. So 11 further reports were identified, mainly through the reference lists from the medical thing, and then spiralling out from that. And one of these very large reports from the Department of Education, a research report which they produce every now and then, was included into this. And the results of these are all summarised and brought together, as we always do within the Archimedes. Now, of those papers, there were a couple that were very small, under 100 or so, but many of them in the thousands, and some of them in the 16,000 range, one from the UK and one from Norway. Many of them were actually from North America as well, as you would sort of expect from this situation. What I didn't realise was that it's been legally permitted to adopt children ever since things started as a single person back in 1926, and in the 2018-19 area, around 10% of children were adopted by single people. The UK single adopters often, when they're asked about this, report surprise that they're allowed to do it and that they're actually viewed positively by the agencies and by the social workers. That's that's the response of the people within it. Yes, historically, there has been concern about whether a single parent can adopt as well as a couple can, but the evidence on being analysed in some detail doesn't really support the idea that it's a terrible idea. Overall, single parent adoptions are more likely to disrupt than couple adoptions, but it is more likely to be due to the confounding factors, where single adopters are more likely to take children 
that are at higher risk of breakdown because of the nature of where they are in their life. Single parents are more likely to be matched and adopt children from ethnic minorities, but also children who are older and children with special needs. And these are factors which may be more likely to lead to a breakdown of the adoption and a disruption of that process than children who are younger and children without special needs. When you go into the qualitative data that sits behind it, it suggests that even though it's always been allowed, even though there's no massive strength of data to suggest that single versus couple adoptions would be massively different in terms of the outcomes for the children, they are seen as slightly second choice, and it's if no couples are available. More work is being done on this to develop it, because if there's no data to really suggest a big difference, then we shouldn't be pushing on it. And what we should be doing is working against this intrinsic and, and, and really not evidence-based discrimination that single adopters experience. As paediatricians, we can use research, we can use evidence, not just in the which tyrosine kinase inhibitor should I use for this particular mutation of a CML clone, but we can use it for all of our work because research does not just mean how do we attack cells. Our last case today is also one that something I rarely, rarely worry about being sat in the rain in Yorkshire. But it's a question about cooling methods for paediatric heat-induced illness or heat stroke. Now, when you find out where this comes from, it might make more sense because it's from Draya Jamal, Ibtihal Abdelgadir and Colin Powell, who work out of the Sedra Medical Research Centre in Doha in Qatar. Now, they have a situation where a five-year-old male presents to the paediatric emergency department having accidentally been left in a locked car for three hours in an external temperature of 49 degrees C. The ambulance services broke into and opened the car and the child was found to be unconscious with a core temperature over 40 degrees C. He was airway secured, brought in, ventilated to the emergency department, given a bolus of normal saline, fluid started and passive cooling began using fanning and removal of his clothing. But what would have been a different, better or more advanced technique to use to bring down this child's temperature and reduce the problems of heat-induced illness. The question they ask is, in children presenting with heat-induced illness, that's the patient group, is cold or ice water immersion more effective than the passive cooling techniques at reducing body temperature? They went away and they looked at the medical literature this time, and that sort of makes more sense than going into the social stuff, searching for heat stroke and cooling methods, and eight reviews were brought together, three of them very relevant and summarised in the paper. They largely look at adults, and this isn't desperately surprising given that adults are much more likely to get heat stroke than children are, and be subject to these sorts of things. 
What it is, is bringing in a bunch of studies that are not randomized controlled trials. The majority of these are from case series, they're from observational data, where people have done it in different ways, one way or the other. And they're comparing sort of passive approaches like fanning and keeping people in a cool area and stripping them off with the uh, evaporation type techniques. So these are things like using ice water or cold water immersion. But ice water immersion, particularly if you think about somebody being ventilated, is a very, very difficult idea to use. Cold water immersion or placing cold water around and continually on someone probably works more effectively than purely passive techniques. Now, with all of these things, you're aiming for a slight balance between bringing someone down too quickly and bringing someone down too slowly and there is a, a sort of a target of 0.2 um, degrees per minute within the first hour to minimize the complications for heat induced related illness and, and that sort of target zone is probably the best nature uh, of, uh, uh, of evidence to, to, to really say that we've got a target the, the how do we get there is less well supported there is really very little evidence direct in kids and many people don't really uh, see that there'll be an enormous difference between the, the pathologies involved and the way that this might work and that's fair enough really. Um, there are some sort of fancy things like um, uh, like a thermos that uh, I guess I'd be more used to using to keep my tea warm on a, uh, a rainy uh, holiday on the beach uh, but, but thermos type suit uh, are using instead to keep things cool rather than to keep things hot. Other sort of elements have been used with wet towels, sponging in different ways, and, and maybe that is the best way for paediatrics because it allows parents to keep seeing and being engaged with the process and with different sizes and different issues with smaller children. It allows you to be more careful and more controlled in what you manage to do. The bottom line is that if this happens, you cool the child down. You cool them sort of aiming for that 0.2 degrees C per minute and you do it by putting cold things on the child which is somewhat different than the situation of a kid with an intrinsic fever. So, those are our cases and wonderings for this time. We hope that you too have wonderings and you too seek evidence to find answers to those. Feel free to follow the instructions to authors and send stuff in and we will be delighted to receive your submissions and maybe get you to take part in this fun, fun experience of being an Archimedes author in the future. Thank you and we'll speak to you next month.